All right, we made it. 2020, here we are. This is the second podcast I'm releasing. The first one was released last week in a different decade, and I'm excited to be continuing with another one this week. You'll probably notice that the name of the podcast has changed, and that is to reflect kind of a realignment of the podcast along with my blog and vlog. I've been doing a lot of work this week to get my topics and guests in order, and I'm hoping uh, for this to be the second and last solo episode for a while. I'd like to thank everyone who listened in last week, those of you who reached out and shared your support with me. I really do appreciate it. From here on out, episodes will come in more of a talk show format with co-hosts, guests, and a more conversational approach on a variety of lifestyle topics. Last week's podcast was a challenge, not to produce, but rather a challenge to myself to produce something and not let nerves get in the way and needlessly delay getting into this. It was rough in places. I didn't get started on until like three in the afternoon. And so today I'm going to clarify some of what I shared in it and go into a couple of new things too, including a little introduction to my blog and vlog. And then I'll cap off today's episode uh, with my perspective going forward into 2020. But for now, first things first. The story last week was kind of a view into what got me to where I am right now. I realized in retrospect that there was a lot of information left out, and so I'm going to go back through a little bit of that today and fill in some missing pieces. If you haven't listened to that one yet, you're not going to be missing much, except a view into what a first attempt sounds like. So let's go ahead and get into it. My upbringing taught me that I could do anything if I put my mind to it. My late teen and early 20s were a very hedonistic period of self-discovery, rich with experiences. I learned a lot about myself, and my life gave birth to a lot of vision and dreams for the future. I was enjoying life, and everything just seemed to be falling into place. The devil's in the details, though, as I reached a critical point about three-quarters of the way through college, where different challenges that were mounting at school, coupled with the reality that I would soon be out entering into the world on my own to pursue my dreams and visions, caused me to sit back and reflect on my path and where I was headed. I realized, first of all, that much of what had occurred up to this point was all by default, and not because of any reflection or deliberate decision. I enjoyed music, and I was good at it, but I didn't really know the commitment I was making. I thought I was just learning to get a job. It ended up being much more difficult than I thought it would be, not in a technical sense, but mentally and emotionally. It wasn't something I saw myself ever doing again, that is, going through school, and that's when I realized the seriousness of it. I came to realize that I was more or less setting up the rest of my life and arrived at the conclusion that this career path, which was one thing, and the future I wanted to create for myself, a different thing, were incompatible with one another, and it was time to make a change. Frustrated, I began to start researching everything that I could on success, because I felt like the career path I was on was not going to give me what I wanted. I researched all different types of jobs. My goals were simple, to do something I would enjoy and make a healthy living with it. To me, a healthy living would have probably been in the range of seventy-five to 100000 a year, but it could have been less, depending on what it was. Naturally, I was a bit confused at that point as to what that would be, having never considered anything but music. Frustrated also with all the time I'd spent on one thing, I began to research whether or not a college degree was actually really all that integral to success. If I was going to have to restart in something else, or if this whole degree thing was just a gatekeeping mechanism of the job industry... I started reading about entrepreneurialism and profiling all of the major college dropout success stories, kind of exploring the worst case scenario, if you will. I began to see that while not quite so straightforward, it was definitely possible. It was a complete and total paradigm shift for me. It wasn't education that was the problem. It was the system. 
In the process of researching, I started cataloging all of my findings and got the idea to compile it into a book. I felt like there would be immense value in a book that laid out a plan for creating a degree-free career, one that still placed an emphasis on education, but removed the inefficiencies and distractions of the degree plan and focused primarily on finding one's passion, discovering their work style, and learning some key entrepreneurial skill sets so that if you wanted to go and be an employee, you could. But if you wanted to create something entirely new or partner with someone else who shared similar interests to do that, you would not only have the time in your schedule to do so, but also the necessary skills to create something from nothing and manage a business venture. I had no idea before I embarked on this rogue journey how much satisfaction I would get from researching and working on something that I felt had meaning and the ability to make a huge impact on the world. I came to the realization at that point in time that, for the most part, we are a nation of employees, and not everyone fits into the mold that society and our job market have created. In the process of making all these changes and shifts, I also adopted a new spiritual perspective that really helped me to understand and settle on the purpose of life, because that was something I was really struggling with at that point in time. All the frustration and feeling misled caused me to ponder what the purpose of any of this was. The social narrative at the time of going to school, getting a job, working for 30 to 40 years, and then retiring just seemed so grim. So when I looked at things with new possibilities and from new perspectives, my eyes were open to all of what life could be. It was a time in my life full of changes. Going to school, realizing what I did about school and my future, learning empathy and compassion for others from experiencing challenges I'd never had before, and seeing all the opportunity to affect change, along with discovering a love for writing and researching and sharing with people, helped me forge and synthesize my purpose. I left school and began working full-time in music in a job that didn't require a degree that still gave me the ability to make a good living. I went on to be hired for several positions over the past few years that I earned my way into based on my skills and abilities and not the pieces of paper I might have otherwise needed. I was able to live the life I wanted, and I took time to continue to live life, gain new experiences, and keep writing and working on my bigger purpose, which I'll get to in a moment. Over time, my writing, which started out as the degree-free career book, expanded into lifestyle blogging and has grown to cover a wide variety of topics. I'm now at the point where I'm ready to take that passion, the mission and purpose that I accidentally stumbled upon of trying to find a way to a better life for myself and turn it into a career to help change the world. I've been planning for the past year pretty intensively on how it conceivably could all work out, and I'm taking the intersection of turning 30, a new decade, and the year 2020 as the prime opportunity to launch this change. At 30, I figured out something I wish I would have spent more time looking for and exploring earlier in life, and that's my purpose. My purpose, I feel, is to help people live better lives, to look at the challenges we're all facing and find solutions, to introduce new perspectives. To be a curator of those perspectives, one who shares a bunch of ideas to create a new lifestyle. To speak up for those who are most in need, to unite people and bring them together, and to build a better world. That's why I started blogging in the first place. Originally, it was a blog about being successful without a degree. In time, though, it moved into more of a lifestyle blog and is what it's become today. I realized I had interest not just in retooling our default path to success and uncovering other options and paths, but other subjects as well. It's evolved even further now to encompass a more holistic approach to life with topics in every subject. Finding balance in life, good nutrition, having fun, strategies to obtain good mental health, keeping check of what's important in life, 
finding your passion and creating a meaningful career, dressing well and building self-esteem, taking care of yourself, features on essential knowledge and good practices, and becoming the modern-day Renaissance woman or man, well-rounded and versed in a number of topics, basically empowering you to reach your full potential. The core goal has never changed, to help others improve their lives. It all started at a young age with being taught that if I could imagine it, I could do it. And it all became clear to me in my 20s, being set out into the real world, encountering challenges, surveying the surroundings, and wanting to do something to help myself and help others overcome those challenges. So really, that's what all of this is about going forward. It's all about removing the roadblocks, finding what really gets us going, and having fun doing it. And that concludes that section. The next section I'm interested in moving on to is giving a little bit of information about what's happened this past week in terms of organizing the blog, podcast, and the blog. The blog has been around for some time now, and as I began planning in the past few months for a more deliberate attempt at realizing this career of helping others, I decided to add a video aspect to it as well. It's always been a challenge, though, to try and develop a framework for how video and text work together, because it would be silly to have one be a duplication of the other. So I sat back and thought about the two mediums, the types of content I do, whether it be reviews, instructionals, interviews, opinion pieces, etc., and also the subjects, and what does better in text versus in video. I developed an approach for packaging and distributing content based on where it would do best, and it made sense, and I liked it. Then I got the bug to start a podcast. I was in a pinch. I struggled because now that I'd just figured out how to make video and text work together and complement one another, I'm adding a different format into the mix. What's the purpose of each one? What are the topics? I asked myself, is this really necessary? And something told me yes. And I thought, surely I'll find out in time. With this new year and turning 30, now is not the time to tell myself no and not do things. Authenticity is the key this year. And if the desire exists, I think it's got to be explored. So I deliberated for several days, wondering which one I'd eliminate. And I finally settled on a hierarchy that included all three. I see it as kind of an inverse pyramid, an upside-down triangle, if you will. The blog always has been and always will be the main deal at the top. It's timeless. Written content has an inherent worth and value, and that's something that you can still see in bookstores and newsstands everywhere. The goal might have been for spoken word and to a greater degree video to take over, but people have stood by their love of reading. My goal is to produce several pieces of content per week for the blog. The podcast is the opportunity to have conversations and share perspectives, and along the way, also gain inspiration for new topics and posts. It adds what I think is a complimentary human element to the blog and gives people yet another way to interact with the content. Podcasts are unique in that they don't require the same type of focus that blog and vlog posts do, namely the visual aspect, since there's nothing visual to them. They can be listened to while other things are happening, like on the commute to and from work, on trips, while you're cleaning the house or getting ready, all kinds of things. They can make references to the blog and give a preview of what's coming up and keep people in tune with what to expect. So then that leaves the vlog, the smallest of the three at the bottom, but still an important piece. Aside from a few short video posts here and there to help support and add context to a text post, the video portion is the vlog, which is a once a week, five to seven minute view of my week, a much more intimate one-on-one -on -one view into my life and the creative process, an ongoing journal, if you will. It's valuable, though, because it gives me an opportunity to produce something with as much or more artistic involvement than either text or the podcast. It also gives me a means to track my life and my progress in this career. 
Ultimately though, vlogs give viewers, readers, and listeners a way to identify and connect with the creator, find parallels between their lives, and draw inspiration and motivation from what I've done. I realize I've been spending a lot of time doing housekeeping, talking about the process behind everything, but I promise I'm finished after this one last thing. This topic has been the elephant in the room for a long time for me personally, and I feel like it's the perfect time to address it before we really go full steam ahead with all of the projects that this year has to, uh, to show. I'm just going to make it real simple and easy. As a blog that's focused on improving people's lives, it's only natural that we get ideas about what that might entail. We have a tendency to look inside our own lives and think about our biggest problems, and for many, it's what's going on in the world right now. Politics, healthcare, taxes, human rights, inequality, and other injustices that may be out of our control, but not out of our influence. I think it would be irresponsible of me to bury my head in the sand and pretend like all of this isn't happening. I also think that to give people advice that helps to improve higher level things in their life without taking care of lower level needs is kind of insensitive. Obviously, there's some room for improvement with what's going on. I'm not saying who or what side, though. In fact, you'll rarely ever hear me talking about any of this because I believe that our potential to fix our lives and the conditions that we live in is far more in the choices that we make on a day-to-day -day basis and the perspectives that we hold than it is in getting other people to do things to make situations better for us. It's more about the things that we have control over and less about what the rest of the world does. But in the few instances where I do talk about any of this, I'm choosing to stay focused on the what. And to me, the what is what the problem is, what caused it, what allows it to continue, and what we need to do to fix it. There's a lot of potential to unite or divide with what I have to say, and I want to unite people. I want people to have fun and enjoy listening to my podcast, reading the blog, and watching the vlog. I don't want to dismiss others and their opinions. I want people to truly feel valued and welcome, even if they feel that we may differ on a subject. I want to talk about things that are going on, but I want to stay focused on the issue and the solution and not whose fault it is or why they are wrong. I want a monologue that will provide a solution, and I think in a large way that solution is not one of those be-all, end-all solutions for each and every problem, but rather a suggestion that we change how we approach the problem and the solution. I want to give an example to the world of how we have to approach disagreements and differing viewpoints, especially when it comes to matters that affect large groups of people. I often think of people like Carl Sagan, or Bob Ross, or even Mr. Rogers when it comes to tackling subjects like these. How would they handle it? So much of the divide that we have in the world is fueled by all of us taking sides, and unfortunately I believe that those sides are based on ideas that have some truth but have been spun, whether it be by a party, media, or the very people holding them, to promote an agenda and the strength and momentum of an ideology and unfortunately in the process create beliefs and viewpoints that aren't grounded in the real world. This is why we really can't get anywhere. We're fighting one version of the truth with another version of the truth, trying to get the other side to give up to embrace our truth that isn't even the real truth. Sometimes it's not even that we change the truth. Instead, we leave certain things out and play other things up to vilify the other side or the problem and to promote our cause. There's an idea or strategy that people use for decision-making in businesses all the time called Strong Opinions Weekly Held. It was developed by technology forecaster and Stanford University professor Paul Safo. The idea is that 
in spite of not having a lot of information on a given topic or idea, you develop a tentative hypothesis for what the decision or forecast should be. You then gather information that supports or refutes the hypothesis. The important part is that if you uncover information that refutes the hypothesis, that you then change your hypothesis. The advice that's given is not to cling to your original idea or decision, even when contradictory information comes up. In fact, you should actively seek contradictory information. That's what provides you with information to improve the hypothesis or decision and create new iterations until you ultimately get to the right answer. That's what we need to start thinking about things critically. It's tough to do that, though. In fact, it's almost against human nature, and we have the psychological concept of belongingness to attribute that toward. Belongingness is the idea that humans have an emotional need to be a member of a group. Inherently, it's a survival mechanism, and usually a good thing, but it can go bad when groups foster divide. This need for belonging goes beyond simply being acquainted with other people, toward the need for gaining acceptance, attention, and support from members of the group, and also providing attention to them. Many social groups are really nothing more than people who share an ideology. And in order to feed their emotional needs, gain acceptance, and derive a sense of self-worth and esteem, those who join these groups in a search for belonging often begin to embody the behaviors, attitudes, and beliefs of prominent people within a group, often without question. The need and desire to belong to certain social groups over others often results from sharing some point of commonality. People who have similar jobs, conditions, locations, upbringings, and even things like socioeconomic status, religious, and political beliefs. People see other people like or nearby to them and work themselves into the fold, becoming like them to protect themselves and build a tribe. We then become a product of our surroundings, becoming influenced by what's around us at a very young age, usually by default. To compound and sometimes make things worse, we also have confirmation bias. The idea that it's a natural human tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that affirms our prior beliefs and hypotheses by default, instead of analyzing a situation critically. As we become part of a group and begin to accept ideas, irregardless of the validity of them, we literally tend to look for, interpret, place higher importance on, and choose only to remember information that supports those initial ideas. People also tend to take information that could go either way and interpret it in a manner that supports their idea. People are biased toward confirming their existing beliefs and will take almost anything, true or not, and literally seek out information that confirms it and discredit information that challenges it. In today's high-stress world where we're hyper-connected yet simultaneously ultra-distanced from one another, we are very lacking in meaningful interactions with one another. And so that need for a sense of safety, security, and belonging is greater than ever. And the desire to belong and the tendency for it to cause people to adopt ideas and beliefs of a group to fit in, regardless of their validity, is further compounded by our natural inclination of bias to seek information and ideas that strengthen those initial beliefs. Those of us who are in constant disagreement are at least in some part guilty of running on autopilot. We're likely guilty of accepting beliefs and ideas from those within our groups that are almost the truth, but not quite, that might have been derived from the truth or that may play up certain details while leaving others out just to promote the cause. We tend to make matters worse by naturally looking for information that supports and strengthens those beliefs with more evidence. As a part of the desire to belong, we may even have opinions that we argue about over problems that don't even affect us. 
At the end of the day, we're concerned by a problem, but not always willing to verify that the ideas and beliefs that we hold on how it needs to be fixed will actually fix the problem because we're too concerned with everything the other side is doing to try to unravel our work. Even if we realize we may not be entirely right, if they're not willing to budge, then why should we? It's time for all of us to take the high road together. This is an important thing for me to remember in my writing, because I want to be a person that helps us to take the high road. Personally, I want to commit to shedding bias and partisan perspectives, and look to talk about and discuss issues and solutions from as factual a basis as possible. I knew that in order to speak and write and present my thoughts about everything in an authentic and open manner, these types of topics would come up at some point in time. And I decided that I would approach this new year and all of my work with a standard, a manifesto, so to speak, that would help to guide me and ensure that everything that I share is presented from a place of desire for mutually beneficial change. Not to offend, but to get us thinking, analyzing things critically, seeking truth, trying to pull ourselves up and together so that we can make some real progress in these coming years. As I said previously, I want to set an example of how we have to approach disagreements and differing viewpoints especially when it comes to matters that affect large groups of people. So these are my goals for 2020. I'm going to approach things with an open mind. I'm going to back my decisions up with facts and research. I'm going to be brave and assume that people have good intentions, perhaps just different ways of getting to them than I would instead of writing them off from the start. I'm going to consider all opinions and perspectives impartially even when my own inherent bias rears its ugly head. I'm going to accept the possibility that I may be wrong and that it may be challenging and difficult to let go of firmly held beliefs. I'm going to commit to being okay with the possibility and even the probability of being wrong. I'm going to don humility and shed pride. I'm going to find commonalities between myself and others. I'm going to become one who promotes and advocates for civility in public discourse. I'm going to ask open-ended, non-judgmental questions. Who, what, why, when, where, and how to place understanding ahead of the solution. I'm going to defend the integrity of debate and resolving problems by doing everything that I can to ensure that all I say and claim is factual, truthful, and verifiable. I'm going to remind myself and those I speak with that issues are not blue or red, them or us, right or wrong, they are things that we all deal with and that we all have to fix together. I'm going to encourage others to do all of this with me. I'm going to do it for the good of all. At a point sometime earlier in life, my perspective on humanity and our existence was galvanized by a quote that I read by then modern day Renaissance man, Carl Sagan. Mr. Sagan passed away in 1996 but left us with a body of work and a perspective that will forever influence what we do. In particular, his book, titled Pale Blue Dot, was inspired by an image taken, at his own suggestion, by the Voyager 1 spacecraft on Valentine's Day, February 14th of 1990. As the spacecraft left our planetary neighborhood to explore the far edges of the solar system, Sagan pleaded with officials to turn the camera around to take one last look at its home planet. The photograph almost never happened. Earlier in Voyager's mission, as it was studying Jupiter and Saturn, he had tried to get them to turn it back around to look at the Earth, but the team was worried that the sun would end up harming the camera. With the official mission winding down, Sagan got his wish. 
Voyager 1 was about 4 billion miles away when it captured this portrait of our world, the one that inspired the title of this book, just before its camera was shut down to conserve power for other more crucial systems. Caught in the center of scattered light rays, which was a result of taking the picture so close to the sun, the Earth appears as a tiny point of light, a small dot, barely one-tenth of one pixel in size. This picture inspired him to offer the following reflection, which is what I'm now going to share with you as something to consider and take with you as a close to this section and to today's podcast. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there. On a moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that, in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known.